Hey, y'all. Hey, welcome back to another episode of the Why Don't We Talk About This podcast. I'm your host, Paula McMillan Perez, and I'm a licensed clinical social worker and psychotherapist. On today's episode, we have the amazing Mallory Rogers. She's a licensed professional counselor, and she's here speaking with us about pivoting her work to serving neurodiverse children and their parents, as well as some tips and tricks that she's picked up along the way to create supportive, safe spaces and what that looks like within these communities. Here we go. Yeah, hi. So my name is Mallory Rogers. I am an LPC, so licensed professional counselor um, based in Texas. So I live in the Dallas-Fort Worth area. Um, So I have been a therapist for a number of years, but I have really, really, really loved diving into specializing in inclusive, neurodiversity affirming care. So that means a whole lot of things. We can get into that. Um, But I work with uh, individuals ages 12 and up. And then um, I do some parent coaching as well. I have a background in doing a lot of play therapy work. That's what I did for the like huge chunk of the beginning of my um, career. And I really loved it. Really loved it a lot. But I did find that I had such a passion for the parents. Like I was only having just a small touch point with them for the sessions and just had a huge passion for all that they were navigating. So um, kind of moved more into working with like teens and adults. And that um, is also where like the parent coaching part comes in. So I have to say shout out to you on probably 75 different levels. Um, one, because my neurodiverse heart is like beating hard in its chest because <laughs> you get our people. Um, mm-hmm. And also, it is not many of us who love the adolescent population. We know that they can be their own special brand of challenge. Um, that, for me, it lights a fire in me um, because I was also that kid that was all kinds of challenges. And more specifically that you saw that there were gaps in terms of filling in the parent piece or identifying how parents could possibly, hopefully, um, be additional resources in the journey, even if you are primarily working with the child. Because I think that's something that sometimes in our work, we see that there's a lot of parental emphasis and there's a lot of... um, presence when kids are younger and as they get older whether it's oh they got it or they'll grow out of it or i'm tired of this it's not as present as when they were younger so kind of tapping into that i think is amazing and also can be challenging for a variety of reasons and you said you know what bring on the challenges (laughs) yep No, absolutely. And I don't think like, I think if you would have told me that this is what I was going to be working in while I was like in grad school, I think I just would have been so sweaty about it. I would have been like, absolutely not. Like that is not the move. Um, And even in working in like the neurodiversity, I didn't know what that word even meant in grad school. I don't think I'd ever heard it when I was in grad school. And that's something I think people are working on changing. I definitely want that to be different for people. Um, You know, so yeah, I mean, it's so important. And we know now, I mean, the, the conservative estimate is that that's 15 to 20% of the population. So that means we have a long way to go and like making 20% of the population have a place where they feel safe. But 
Um, I started out working with, I am myself, a bit of a perfectionist or recovering one, I should say. And so I was like, I can work with that. You know, that's kind of the thing that I'll market for at the beginning and ended up finding that with the adults that were coming to me and then the kiddos that I was seeing through play therapy that kind of just came through the practice that I was at. It's like, I don't really love like the, the common knowledge that I'm finding for like, what is ADHD? How do we navigate that? But I was also noticing that so many of the people coming in for like high achievers, perfectionists, stuff like that also had a lot of like neurodivergent traits. And so that was really, and so that's how I ended up like looking more into it and being like, what is this? Like, how do I actually meet these people where they are? And, um, really dove in that way and like education and kind of moving away from maybe some of the more like traditional talking points and like teaching points for like how to help quote unquote help um, neurodivergent folks. So I dove in like head first and found like it, it, there was not like a class on it in a lot of ways. Like it was a lot of like joining Facebook groups and like learning based on like lived experience voices i don't identify as adhd or autistic i do now identify as a highly sensitive person i didn't realize that until i became a parent and i was like oh <laughs> now it's hitting me but anyway so it's an interesting journey it's not ever what i would have like picked out for myself but then it is i just have loved i've fallen in love with this community of people and especially fallen in love with making sure that they have a safe space to go to in therapy, because that's like technically what this is supposed to be. But the number of people that I've heard from my own clients, but also in different spaces where I've listened to lived experience voices where they've said therapy was one of the least safe places for me. I didn't feel like seen there. I didn't feel like I could fully be myself. I was masking a lot of the time. Right. Which is like the therapist, the very opposite of what we really want to hear. So lots of gaps, I think, in education, but it's, it's cool to watch it slowly change. Well, definitely. And I will say probably every word you just said resonated with me. Um, but as someone who worked in schools for quite some time, one of the things that I heard the most is like, but I thought it was supposed to be safe, um, especially yeah. with the generation that we have now that, you know, there has been an influx of mental health friendly supports. Um, so depending on like folks culture, if they were open to it, just feeling like, but this is what it's supposed to be. Like, this is what it has build, been billed as, or this is what like they, it talks about social media, but it doesn't feel like that. And, you know, depending on where they are in their development, um, lived experience, culture, sometimes spirituality. It's just like, mm, I'm already, everywhere else already is in a safe space. So like, this isn't a thing that I may even want to dip my toe into, even if it could be helpful. And I don't fault anyone for that. And, you know, as a person who has ADHD, it was only, I'd say probably within the last five years that even I stopped masking because it's just like, where do I fit? Like, I don't fit, like, I don't feel like, you know, that clean peg that slides into the slot, whereas it appeared to me that that was the case for everyone else. And I'm like, if I'm feeling that as an adult, and I remember how hard adolescence was where I yeah. didn't have the development, the cognition to put this stuff together. And I didn't live through a pandemic. Right. I didn't deal with social media. Like, mm -hmm. I could at least turn some of it off when I went home. How are these kiddos even navigating this? I know. Um, so 
And you really spoke to the piece about education because like yourself, I didn't hear the term neurodiverse mm -hmm. when I was in grad school. And then when I did begin to learn about it, I didn't realize how expansive it was. Um, and even, you know, yourself, you identified, you know, as a highly sensitive person when you became a parent, um, a good friend of mine and and someone who was on a previous episode, Kimberly Marshall, um, that was something that she learned about herself too, which is why she got certified to coach in that avenue because it spoke to her the same way it sounds like through your work. I'm sure play therapy was dope. I tried it a couple of times when I worked with the little ones, but the little ones are not for me. <laughs> but you were able to see okay, like, yes, I'm doing this and I love it, but there is more and I see the need and I know where I can kind of fill the gap. And what I really super appreciate is like taking that lived experience and not doing the traditional, just talking about it. It doesn't work for everyone. And I know um, professional counseling and social work pedagogy like are slightly different, but at the very least, we're meeting them where they're at. We're trying to figure out where they're at. We're trying to build trust, engagement. And I think that is the root of what this work is, is building connection. Yeah. And we already have the diversity in our brain. So let's build some more connections. Right. Yes. <laughs> That's, I think, too, one of the things that I've come across a lot is this feeling where, especially neurodivergent people, they feel like, I don't have a space, right? Like I, one of the most common things that I would hear, especially from people who like aren't diagnosed or haven't really explored that identity for themselves yet is eventually this kind of theme of, I didn't have a place to belong or I tried really hard to fit in. And I think, you know, to the point you were saying earlier, like every teenager kind of feels that way. Like everyone thinks everyone else has it figured out. But what I, what I have learned is that some of them really do. I mean, to their core, they feel that, right? Like, it's just harder to feel like they have a place. Um, and they don't have to be neurodivergent for that. But a lot of those neurodivergent teens that I will end up working with, um, I felt that. And so, yeah, I think that's just where my, my heart beats a little bit faster is like, oh, but just let this be a place where you can feel that, right? Like, let this be a place. And I think that's why the vast majority of us go into these professions we want people to feel safe we want people to feel you know we don't want to help this is a helping profession um regardless of what license we hold or if we're coaching like we want to help people um so i think that's where too like my passion for like what does it look like to be offering like neurodiversity affirming therapy because i think if everyone knew about it they would probably want to offer something like that right at the end of the day it's just like you're welcome as you are please come on in um, it gets a lot more nuanced, right? When you get down the, the weeds of it. But um, yeah, I've seen so much of a need for that and seen them just like come alive when they do feel like they have that space, um, especially for kiddos or adults even, you know, the house that they live in, however old they are, feeling like that's not really even a safe space or that's not where they feel like they can fully like, quote unquote, unmask. Yeah, that unmasking, it's such a freeing experience. And even, you know, in in the exploring what that could look like, just the fear of even the possibility of not even taking it off all the way, just bringing it down a right. little at times can be so crippling because mm -hmm. now what? Now what else am I going to be possibly exposed to? Or am I going to feel more unsafe? Or does this place a target on my back? 
and not just in one place that you take up, in all of the places that you take up. So like sometimes I'm like, even like right now I talk about it, I'm like, wow, this like that was just tiring. Or yeah. even um, I don't know how long it's been since you fill out a job application, but I had a client <laughs> that shared with me she graduated college. I think it was like a year or so ago we had this conversation and some of the applications now i think most because of different laws and requirements asks about disabilities mm -hmm. and there are some mental health diagnoses and other things that are listed on there and she was like but i don't have a disability like i'm not disabled so that we explored that deeply but the thing that I find interesting about that, too, is in tandem with that question, one of the other things that's asked is about what accommodations might you need to fulfill your job duties as a result of your disability? How are we supposed to answer that when <laughs> we have been in communities, in spaces and environments that didn't give us what we need, that didn't create mm -hmm. safe spaces, but now you want me to basically out myself and mm -hmm. also have an awareness of what it is that I need to feel most successful when I've been hiding it this whole time because you didn't accept me in the first place. And then if I don't meet the quota of disabled people in whatever percentage that you need to have in your organization, whoever's looking this over might just be like, mm, that sounds like a lot of work or we're going to have to do more. So let's cast this person aside. So it's kind of like we're continuing to perpetuate that lack yeah. of safety and creation of space for folks to come and be as they are. Mm -hmm. It is a massive like systemic problem. And we talked a little bit about, you know, education. It shows up so much there in the workforce, whether it's on a piece of paper or not, you know, um, so many places, I think even what's expected in relationships and like social dynamics, like, oh my gosh, comes out so much there. And when you were talking about, um, you know, masking and the like exhaustion that can come really from both, it's exhausting to have to mask all the time. It's also exhausting to start the process of beginning to like show a little bit more of yourself and like be vulnerable in that way. Because like you were saying, especially if you hold other identities that are like minority identities or where it's a little bit more dangerous to have that identity, depending on where you live, the culture that you're in, you start to unmask. And like you said, it can put a target on your back in a lot of ways. Um, so there's like so much that goes into that. And one of the key parts of masking that I explore with people a lot and it's in a lot of the like really valuable resources in this space that I've found is this idea that masking in and of itself is not bad. Like it can be so protective of, you know, a person of like, no, it's not safe for me to show everyone who I am. Like we think of, um, you know, an autistic person walking down the street, that's stimming. So maybe they're like doing something that for their nervous system helps them regulate and feel good. But the way that it might be viewed isn't so great right so for them to like be expressing that um but if that person happens to be a racial minority it gets even worse and so there's like there can be genuine value to it but if they do find themselves to be in a space where they can like feel safe enough like actually safe <laughs> for their physical safety but also emotionally safe and have that felt safety 
man, like I feel like the way you were talking about how it felt for you, it's it just makes such a big difference to like finally have a place where you can start to like, okay. And sometimes an identity crisis of like, well, wait, who am I? Who am I in here? (laughs) Because I've had to just keep it inside for all of this time. So it's really sweet to sit and be, I mean, it's honoring um, to get to sit and be with someone as they're like kind of finding themselves again. Yeah, or even identifying that maybe they can't find themselves, but now yeah. they have to begin to develop who it is that they want to be and how they feel comfortable in showing up in whatever incremental places and spaces that is. So I I definitely echo that sentiment, especially when, you know, those new connections are made of their own volition. It's just it, it makes my heart grow like multiple sizes. <laughs> so I definitely echo that sentiment. I do wonder a little bit um, about the experiences that you've had with regard to the parents, like as you transitioned from that play therapy work into, you know, the parent coaching and parent support um, when having neurodivergent children, because I would assume that that has also been a bit of a learning experience too. Mm-hmm. It's a huge part of it. I think a, one big part is usually because you were talking about work, you know, in the workplace and navigating like accommodations. Like, where do we start with that? I mean, that's a huge part of working with these parents and their kiddos is in the affirming space. It is viewed as um, valid to like self-identify. Um, so what that means is that if that is an identity that you want to claim for yourself, nobody's in the affirming space for the most part going to be saying you have to go get a diagnosis first. They're not gate gatekeeping that really. Um, but when we talk about accommodations, totally different ball game, especially in like the public education sphere, right? Like if you want an accommodation, there's all the, you've got the education background. I'm sure, you know, there's all the paperwork, there's all the meetings, there's all the things that go into that. And so one of the biggest things that I've tried to do is connect families to if they're wanting to seek accommodations, especially with the older teens who parents will oftentimes like help empower them of like, what do you want in the education space? Like, what do you, you know, would an accommodation feel good to you? Or would that make you feel even more othered to be the kid that leaves the class, to be the kid that needs to sit in a certain place? Um, you know, the wears headphones when they walk down the hallway because the like sound is just too much. Um, so it can be so specialized, but I love getting to work in tandem with, families who are trying to navigate that like accommodations and I'm always learning so much I feel like there is always so much to be learning um but one of the cool parts about working with these parents as well is um when they are starting to notice these things in their kiddos so they bring them in and like hey this is what we're noticing like great so as we're working together if I notice neurodivergent traits if they haven't already brought it up I'll bring it to their attention at some point um and sometimes you hear from the parent, like, no, like, that's not neurodivergence. Like, I've done that. I do that. Ah. And just, <laughs> just kind of waiting for, like, uh-huh. <laughs> um, you know, and some of them get there where they're like, oh, you know, maybe this that's an identity that I also hold. Or that's a diagnosis. Or depending on if this word feels good to them, like, that's also a disability that maybe I've been dealing with my whole life. And I just thought that I needed to try harder. I just thought that I needed to um, keep trying to fit in or, you know, sit still or focus a little bit more 
and then and, and I was able to do it. And so why can't my child? So that's part of what I mean of like it being so sweet to get to sit with those parents of like, I don't have time to work through that with you in 10 minute parent <laughs> consult every, you know, I really love getting to sit. And some of those parents, they never get to that point or maybe they aren't neurodivergent, but just that self-reflection, I think also to have that modeled for their kid, especially an older kid, a teenager, um, I think it's so valuable because the kid gets to see their parent wrestling with like this identity, right? Or maybe the parent already knew that they were neurodivergent. Maybe they already identified autistic or ADHD or, I mean, there's so many actually things that go under that neurodivergent umbrella. Um, it could be OCD. It could be an, a brain sensory. injury. There's a whole, yeah, sensory processing. Yeah, there's so many different things. Dyspraxia, dyslexia um, to go under there. So yeah, I just think it is so powerful for that kiddo to get to see, like, how does their parent approach this? Even if the parent already knew that was a part of their, like, lived experience. Um, and there's so many feelings that come up with parents in that, too, because, you know, sometimes it's greed. Um, I really hoped my kid wouldn't have to navigate this because while there are pros to this, it's also been really, really hard. Um, you know, the world's not built for someone like us. And so I just wished that they wouldn't have to, you know, navigate this and we can hold space for that grief. We can also hold space. Sometimes parents are like, this is awesome. Like, I love the way my brain works. And so I hope that he or she or they gets to also love how their brain works at some point. Um, and I'm here for the ride. Like they're probably going to have struggles with it and it's definitely challenging on the parent end. Um, so yeah, I could go off like on and on and on about that, but it's really, really sweet to get to be witness to that journey for them. And so many of them are different. So, so many of them have different like, aspects that make it safer or harder to really start to see that neurodivergence in themselves and or their kid. And, and just, you know, a part that I wanted to add on that, you know, I really, that really kind of like opened my eyes and work it when I begun working with adolescents and even doing like that parent consult, I was like, listen, this, this time 15 minutes, this ain't it. Now, mm -hmm. while I'm not going to charge you an additional copay, I think it would be helpful <laughs> for at least once a month, you know, for us to kind of like sit, like, what is it that you're seeing? What are you observing? What do you remember around the time you were 13 and you know, the seasons were changing or like whatever have you. And then actually seeing like some of the parallels. But the thing that I really appreciate, especially about like diving into the parent work, even with a parent that is resistant, it's like, why do I have to do this? Like I'm sending my child. It's just like, if you remember some of the most challenging times in your adolescence, did you ever want somebody to come save you <laughs> to make it stop? Like, what if you have the ability to do that for your kid right now? or model what it could have looked like. And a lot of times, and I will admit, I don't do a ton of like shatter work or inner child work, but there are some activities that like I've done with both parents and um, adolescents and the similarities of what they needed to heal that were so, so similar that it's like, so is somebody collecting data on this? Like, <laughs> can somebody like, you know, hone in on a new modality to like treat this? Um, because it is it is so impactful. And that's what came to mind when you were talking about that self-reflection and that modeling. Because just like everything else, unfortunately, we are not taught this. It's not a societal thing. It's not a skill. It's not a form of content that's taught in school like math or social studies. But it is so important 
for our social emotional development and learning even though that's not prioritized. But you didn't come here to hear me on my soapbox. So I'm going to put that aside. I mean, maybe uh, I did. I want to hear yeah. it. <laughs> yeah, I have a lot of feelings. So there, there, there's a reason I have to work for myself. <laughs> I do not stay quiet. But, you know, it really, you know, hearing you speak about it from that lens, like it really brings that up for me. And as per the title of the show, we're not talking about this. And I know over the last, I'd say, 10 years, there has definitely been much more talk, much more data research surrounding neurodiversity, surrounding support, surrounding community-based resources, especially in, in larger areas and urban areas, even though sometimes there isn't that accessibility. But I'm also wondering, even though there has been this growth, why aren't we talking about this? Yeah. No, man. Well, if I'm being real honest, I think a big part of why we don't talk about it is ableism. Um, that is a soapbox that I could get on for a very long time. Um, I think before I step into the ableism, I think also just we're uncomfortable with things we don't understand, right? We're uncomfortable just like in general, people typically are uncomfortable with things that just seem different right? Like different oftentimes is like encoded into our nervous system as wrong or bad. I think we're socialized for that. I think also maybe we're a little bit hardwired for it. Um, but when it comes down to the ableism aspect, it takes, you know, we're talking about accommodations, like it takes work to make change happen. You know, it takes a lot of like cognitive and emotional labor to process through. Well, why do we treat people who are, you know, quote unquote, neurodivergent versus neurotypical, like, why do they have a completely different lived experience in so many different places? And, you know, like you had said earlier, not faulting certain things, but no one I don't think is like sitting down of like, how can we oppress neurodivergent folks? Like, how can we do that? I don't think Good anybody's point. like, sitting around spending time on that. At least actively. I hope they're not. <laughs> sure well yeah there may be there may be i'd like to assume there's not it's better for my like yes! maintenance of my yes! view of humanity <laughs> but in a way if we're not doing the opposite right the omission of really getting um down into the weeds of like what is it like for the other people at this company what is it like for the kids in this school who or in our country who do learn differently, who do have different needs. Like how have we designed things? Like we have to get really intentional, I think, um, at looking at how things function, how like culture operates, systems operate in order to make things more accessible. And that takes more time. It takes more effort, like I was talking about. It also takes money. Um, and we live in a culture that really loves money. How can we get more money and spend less time? And, you know, that would be my capitalism soapbox that I will not bore everybody with. But it's a lot of work. And um, so I do think that that is one of the biggest barriers that stops us from really getting into the weeds and talking about it. I think also, you know, some people really feel comfortable with the disability language and some people don't. Some people prefer identity or disorder or, um, you know, just the word like difference. Um, but we know now 
at minimum, it's 15 to 20% of the population that have some sort of neurodivergence. It could probably, it's probably more. If we're looking at that whole neurodivergent umbrella, like that's a lot of stuff that goes under there, you know? Um, And so I think also it requires a level of vulnerability on the part of the people who would talk about it, right? Like me coming on here and talking about how I identify as an HSP. You've identified that you're ADHD. Like it, it's, you're giving someone a piece of information, especially depending on how you've worked through that already for yourself. You had talked about like the unmasking, you know, uh, that's vulnerable. That's giving someone some information to work off of from you. And um, it's hard to just like pass that over and entrust that someone's going to do well with it, especially when we have a long way to go with education of like what that means. I think, um, you know, I talked about how broad that umbrella is, but they're, you know, the two big things that people tend to think about when they hear the word like neurodivergent is ADHD and autism. And those are two very big ones underneath that umbrella. Those are the ones that we do come across a lot, but um, we're learning so much about what it even looks like to be ADHD and what it means to be autistic, Um, especially when it comes to people who were not originally part of a lot of the research studies done on both of those diagnoses. Um, So women and little girls and um, anyone who is assigned female at birth, like they weren't originally studied very much. And so learning what their lived experience is has given us so much more knowledge on what that might be like that for them to even self-identify if they didn't meet diagnostic criteria is vulnerable because they can be told like, no, you don't belong here, which is terrifying given that they've already felt that for like their entire lives. Yeah, like <laughs> I, I'm just absorbing, like, because I agree with all of that. <sighs> and it makes me feel also inspired because I know for a fact that there's other folks like you out here doing the work, having the passion, you know, re- utilizing the data so that, you know, we can improve. But I'm also just like, I want to just see so much more in my lifetime. But like you said, like change takes work. It takes effort. It takes sacrifice. Um, And sometimes we get tired. Hopefully we rest and keep going. But I also have respect for those people who stop because they're like, I, I can't anymore. Or it's taking away from me or so many other reasons. And they can be okay with that because I feel like that is a gift as well. But thinking through all of these things, I'm wondering what ideas or maybe like suggestions that you have in terms of like, what can like everyday folks do to kind of tackle this or better support it in like their day to day? How can we improve, intervene, create more soapboxes? (laughs) (laughs) We love it. Everyone gets a soapbox. Uh, More free. (laughs) I mean, I think the biggest place that I recommend people starting is education Um, and, you know, social media hit or miss, like it can, it can be dangerous out there, but it's a good place, I think, to go learn about a lived experience of someone else, right? Listen to the voice of someone who has lived their life in shoes different than yours. And that's true with any identity, any experience, but especially with this one, because anyone who is subject to ableism or anyone who is a minority are oftentimes not just given their voice, right? Like they would have to fight for it. And it helps if someone who does have the privilege will listen to it, right? Will make space for it. So um, learning 
education, great place to start. There's so many different, like wonderful resources that I love to send people's way. Um, but really diving into and looking at like, when you come across a resource using our critical thinking skills, does this seem to be something that's trying to be inclusive to try to be understanding that someone else's experience might be different than mine. Um, in general, we're looking at like, when we think of like quote unquote, like treatment approaches, if like you're a therapist or if you're someone who is a medical provider, um, in the affirming space, we tend to stay away from like purely behavioral interventions, um, and move a little bit more towards, let's get to the root of the thing. Like maybe that kiddo is, um, screaming and crying when they walk into school, not because they're just trying to make everyone's life harder or because they need to be taught how to fall in line, but because there's so many people staring at them when they walk into school and that's very overstimulating for them. Um, you know, socially, maybe sensory wise, like, you know, had an off day because their shirt was scratchy or because they didn't sleep very well. Like all of that stuff is going to impact our nervous system. So with that education, then looking at before we make assumptions of other people and what might be going on for them, we all know it's not great to assume, but to maybe consider that there is something going on under the surface that's maybe invisible. Maybe it's an invisible disability. It's an invisible struggle, giving them the benefit of the doubt. And if you're close enough with them, if you're the medical provider, you're the teacher, you're the friend, you're the parent, taking the time to be like, hey, buddy, you know, or hey, friend, adult friend, um, or maybe you're a boss asking, you know, really just getting to know your people and seeing like, maybe we're struggling not because we're trying to be like obstinate or oppositional or difficult, um, but because we need different supports. Um and I think especially looking at like, what do the supports look like for sensory needs? What does it look like for social support needs? Maybe we're on a Zoom meeting and it doesn't feel good to everyone to have their camera on. Maybe that feels like way too much of a spotlight, right? Can we maybe explore what it would look like to not do that? Can we let some people wear like big bulky headphones at their desk because they just need to like cut it out, cut out some of the noise? Um, maybe they're understimulated and they actually need a little bit more movement. They actually need to be able to do something with their bodies, especially in the education space. Um, that can be really, really helpful. We expect these kiddos to sit still for hours on end and, you know, adults can't even do that. Uh, mm -hmm. So I really have opinions <laughs> on that one. <laughs> um, <laughs> and then if it feels accessible, I recommend some people to look into ableism. Like what does ableism look like? Like how does that impact our day to day? How does that, um, what would it start to look like to dismantle that in our daily life? Like, it's great if you are an advocate and you want to go out and you want to, you know, conquer voting rights and you want all of that. But what makes a really big impact, we also know, is just what do you do in your day to day? How do you treat people that are around you? Um, and it can be hard to start to look at those things. It can be really, really like eye opening and not a great way sometimes to be like, man, these are beliefs that I've held about certain people. Um, or certain ways that people might operate or function. Um, a common one with ADHDers is, you know, it's kind of the assumption that like they just need to try harder or that they just need to, if you Even just did it like whole life. Uh-huh. <laughs> a then B then C, then it would work out. Like just do it the way that I do it. And you know, that comes from a good place of like, I just don't want you to struggle anymore, especially thinking about like parents of like, well, if they would just do what I do. Um, and I get it, but maybe if it's not working, it's not just because they're just like not trying hard enough. Like maybe we step back and look at like, oh, I was just, that's just how I've been taught. And that kind of is rooted a little bit in ableism, but like, 
everyone should just be able to try harder and then they can do it. So those are kind of my big, my big categories, education, um, looking at ableism and then especially like trying to make support needs more accessible in all the spheres. Definitely. I think those are really realistic and like tangible solutions too. Um, you know, cause I think that sometimes, especially, and, you know, utilizing, you know, our topic of, you know, like neurodiversity, part of the struggle is that we just feel like sometimes, even though we want to do more or do something, we don't feel like it's within our realm of capability because it's so big. So I think your solutions also talk about like, what is feasible within my current reach? Like, I don't have to necessarily, I don't want to say my comfort zone because your comfort zone could literally be upstairs depending on what's going on. But I don't necessarily have to look for too many far reaching opportunities or spaces, excuse me, or individuals. Because um, even the example of ableism, we all have been unconsciously guilty of that. Like even myself, who is neurodivergent, but it's like when we catch ourselves, what do we do? So even thinking about when I first started using or at least trying my best to utilize pronouns. Now, I would never want to misgender anyone ever, but it is something that at the time I was still getting used to. And when I caught it, I would acknowledge it and I would apologize and I would say that I'm. this is something I'm working on. I'm trying to do better. And I remember especially this, this was around the time where I started working with middle school youth and it was just like, no, it's okay. But we've also been conditioned to try to make the other person feel better. And you don't need to do that. This is something I'm working on. I'm taking responsibility. But also and in that is modeling too, because they need to know that it is not your responsibility to make the person who mistakenly or not misgendered you think better which was baffling to them. I even had a couple right. students come back and they were like, I'm glad you did that. Or even um, apologizing when you make a mistake to a child, they can't fathom that an adult <laughs> would like bow down. And it was just, <laughs> these are important skills to model, but we can't do that if we don't have an awareness. So I really can appreciate all those offerings on <laughs> different levels because they're realistic and feasible and even if you find them challenging, like what life are we leading if we can't challenge ourselves to be at least 1% better every day? Mm -hmm. I don't know. It's true. It's, it's very true. And you got to look at your own capacity, right? How much do you have going on in your life? But it can be so bite-sized, you know, it can be just so, so, so bite-sized. So I love that. Um, yeah. Well, even that, like the power of an adult saying, I don't know everything. I messed up you know, or I didn't realize that I was operating in this way, you know, a parent to go in and apologize. Like that's so powerful. Very rarely do kids hear adults apologize to them. Um, you know, truly deeply. So I love that you've done that and modeled that for so many. And I think, um, it's, it, it can be hard to do in the moment, but man, it's just like tenfold. The fruit from that is just tenfold. This keeps giving. So. Yeah, definitely. Um, so I know that you mentioned earlier when we started talking that you are based in like Dallas, Fort Worth, Fort Worth, 
tongue tied. It's just that time time of night. Um, could you just share just a little bit about like what your work looks like specifically, like population wise? I'm just you know wondering, and I'm I think that maybe by the time the community has gotten to this point in the conversation, they're also <laughs> wondering like, oh, I may live in that area. I may know a cousin. Just you know. <laughs> Yes, well, bring them on. Um, yeah, so I work for a practice um, based in DFW with two locations. Um, if anyone is familiar with the area, one is in North Dallas and one's a little bit closer to Fort Worth, but it's called the Couch Therapy. Um, so we've got quite a few people um, on staff. A lot of them are trained in neurodiversity affirming care, which is really awesome, um, something a lot of us are passionate about. Um, so anyone can go to that website, get connected for therapy. Um, would love to hear from anyone that is in the state of Texas. That's where we're all licensed to um, practice. And then um, if anyone wanted to connect with me on um, like specifically consultation and things like that in this sphere, I think specifically um, some professionals find that helpful. Like, gosh, this is so much. And I would love to learn more. Um, MalloryRogers.com is a good place to go. I also an Instagram account, but I am not very active. So um, that one's just Mallory Rogers. So um, would love to get connected with anyone else who feels a little bit of that spark or that fire um, for this population because it matters a lot. Well, definitely. And all of this information is going to be in the show notes. So please, y'all, don't be shy. If she'd say reach out, she didn't have to say that to reach out. Um, I know I will because I think that this this is going to be the the beginning of uh, some collaborations. Um, but as we begin to wind down, I'm wondering: is there anything that is coming to you that is on your mind or in your heart that you would like to share with the community before we go? Yeah, I think what comes to mind is just the gratitude gratitude to you for making this space for these conversations on your podcast and. Also for anyone who saw this title and took the time to listen and learn, uh, we've said it a couple of times, but the world, I do think, is slowly becoming a safer place for neurodivergent folks. And um, that's just really encouraging and any tiny little steps in that direction really matter. So just thank you. It was so wonderful to hear all of Mallory's gems, especially as the little inner neurodiverse child in me was like, man, where was she when I was coming up? So if you are in the Dallas-Fort Worth area of Texas and you are seeking neurodiverse affirming care, you know exactly who to reach out to. If you are not already following us, please do on Instagram at Why Don't We Talk About This Pod and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and anywhere you get your podcasts. Until next time. The Why Don't We Talk About This podcast is for education and entertainment purposes only and is not a substitute for mental health care. It is hosted by me, Paula McMillan-Perez, and is produced by Fonzie Tri Media.